Guys, so one interesting thing uh, for me about being a pastor is that the conversation about church and religion and relationship with God is unavoidable because all it takes for people is one question to me. What do you do for a living? Oh, I'm a pastor. And immediately you see their face kind of shrink down usually, like, oh no. And sometimes I'll ask people if they attend church. And one of the answers I get a lot of times when I ask that question is they say, no. And then they say something, maybe you've heard somebody say this too, the church is full of hypocrites. And, you know, um, it's interesting because often the way I like to take that conversation is to say, you're right. And um, for those of us who have grown up in the church, I think something that can be really um, difficult for us is we start to realize that there's a lot of people in the church who are pretending to know and love Jesus and walk with him and that don't really know him and aren't really walking with him. And then here's what's even more troubling is when you get a little bit older or maybe you're in this place now and you start to be one of those people that are pretending to walk with Jesus and, and love Jesus. And we all have this tendency and it's easy for us as the church to start to talk about the people out there and all the problems that they have and all the while, we ignore our own hypocrisy and our own tendency to be two-faced. And Jesus, in his ministry, recognized this problem, actually as a great danger. And that's why the text that we're looking at this morning, it begins with the word, beware, be warned, be aware of this reality. And this is what it says, Matthew 6 Verse 1, Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus says there's this great danger in hypocrisy, in pretending to be somebody that we're not, by doing the right things on the outside without having the right heart and the right motivation, where we're seeking the applause of people and not the applause of God, where there's no reality of relationship with God in our lives, but we are continuing to go through the motions, and Jesus says, beware of this. But he says we should beware of this because there's no reward in it. And so what Jesus wants to do in this text is he wants to give us incentive to practice our righteousness, not to be seen by people, but to be seen by God. In other words, as an expression of a real relationship with God. And so the big idea that kind of pulls everything together is that God rewards secret practices. In other words, not when we practice our religion to be seen by other people, but when it's the overflow of a real and vital relationship with God. And so we're going to look at three secret practices that God rewards. The practice of giving, the practice of praying, and the practice of fasting. And so the first one we're going to look at is the practice of giving. So verses 2 through 4, Jesus said this, Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, 
They have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, now this is the interesting thing. Jesus starts each of these sections by saying, thus when you, and in this case it's give. He'll, he'll go on to say, thus when you pray, thus when you fast. So the assumption is that as Christians, we are practicing the disciplines of giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. So the problem for us is actually double what it was for the religious leaders. Because the religious leaders were practicing, they were just doing it with the wrong heart. My fear is in our day, we're both not practicing these things, and thus we can't be doing them with the right heart. And so Jesus is calling us into a practical Christianity. And so the first question we need to answer is, do we give away our money and our time to the poor? Now I'm asking you a different question, maybe the question you want to be asked. I'm not asking if you are passionate about the poor and the marginalized. I'm not asking if you've recently posted about the poor and the marginalized. I'm asking if you actually practically give to the poor and the marginalized. Is that something that you do on a regular basis? Okay, and then hypothetically, if you did do that, some of us are already feeling convicted, some of us do that. Jesus is not just concerned that we do that. Jesus is concerned how we do that. And so the religious leaders of his day would not feel convicted yet because they'd be like, I give lots of money away to the poor. But the way that they did it was disgusting. They would literally sound trumpets. Okay, so imagine just getting like a delegation of trumpet players going downtown Minneapolis, and the way that you let poor people know that you've got buckets of money to give to them is you have all of the trumpet players play the trumpets as loud as they can. Now, the reason that the Pharisees and the religious leaders did this was so that the poor people would know that they were there. But the real reason Jesus says that they did it is so that everyone else would know that they were so generous. Now think about the way that money is such a trap for so many of us. Why is money such a big deal to so many of us? Why don't we give our money away to the poor? Why do we hold on to it ourselves? Now if you think about it, Money becomes something more than money for us. It can become our security. It can become our comfort. It can become our fun. And I think at bottom, money can become our validation. So why do people want a bigger house or a nicer car? Why do we want more stuff? Now, it's partly for the stuff, but it's partly because we want people to look at us and to say, that's a successful person. 
We like the way that money validates our appearance or validates our hard work. Money tends to say to the world, that is a successful person. That person has worked really, really hard. And so one way to get your money working for you in order to validate you is to buy nice stuff so that people think you're successful. That's sort of the secular way. But what Jesus gets at is that there's a more devious religious way to use your money. And that is to treat the needy like a commodity. It's to treat poor people like they are a consumer good to be bought and to earn you validation. And so that's what religious people do. It's not that they've given up on validating themselves through money. It's just they've changed what they're buying with their money. And so what the Pharisees did is they became experts on what would, on buying what would validate them religiously. And so if you want to validate yourself in the secular world, you buy nice stuff. If you want to validate yourself in the religious world, you buy crappy stuff and you give your money away from the poor, to the poor and you let everybody know that you're doing it. But you see the root issue of the matter never changes. And that's what Jesus is saying. You're still looking for the praise of people. And here's what Jesus says. If you look for the praise of people, here's all you're ever going to get, the praise of people. And here's the problem with only ever getting the praise of people is the praise of people will never be enough. Because you were made for the praise of God. You're a child of the King. You were made to be validated by Him. And we all know, we've tried and tried and tried to make ourselves successful, to be enough, to get good enough grades, to be validated by people around us, to post the right things online, to put up the right appearances, to wear the right clothes. And some of us have even gotten the validation. And those of us who have gotten the validation know better than anyone else that it's never enough. Because when you get what you've always wanted and it's not enough, it becomes even more disappointing than when you've never gotten it at all. I just saw the trailer came out not long ago for this documentary called The Weight of Gold. And there's all these famous athletes. The most famous athlete who's sort of frontlining this documentary is Michael Phelps. And it's all these athletes who participated in past Olympics. And they talk about just how difficult it was to get to that point. How you have to revolve your entire life around getting to the Olympics. And, and one of the athletes said, and you have 40 seconds to justify your life's existence. And then Michael Phelps makes this comment. He says, and then you get done with the Olympics, and 80% of the athletes who participate in the Olympics end up with something they call post-Olympic depression. And he's talking about how he experienced this. And we're not talking about somebody who was unsuccessful at the Olympics, we're talking about the most successful Olympian of all time. And he says, I got all the gold medals, I got all the money, I got all the validation. 
And as the title of the documentary points us to, the gold that I thought would give me validation weighed me down. It became not a gold medal of validation, but a gold medal of slavery. And so here's what Jesus is saying. You want the validation that comes from God. Here's the secret. It's totally counterintuitive. Give in such a way. Give, yes, give away your money to the poor. But give in such a way that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. So think about this this image for a second. Most people in ancient cultures and in today's culture are right-handed. So you think of giving a check into the offering box with your right hand and doing so in such a way that your left hand doesn't see what you're doing. It's funny. To do that would be to give unselfconsciously. To give from the bottom of your heart. To give not for human validation, but to give for a completely different reason. To give for God. So in order to receive the validation that comes from God, here's the counterintuitive thing that the gospel tells you you have to do. You have to stop trying to earn your life and receive your life as a gift from God. God wants to give you the life that you're trying to earn freely. He just wants to give it to you, and he wants you to receive it. He wants money to just be money in your life, not for money to be your life. You can let go of your money only when you begin to see that the security and the satisfaction and the joy that you crave for money can only be found in God. And when you find that you're free from money, you can enjoy nice things, but money doesn't have the stranglehold on your life anymore. So the first thing that Jesus calls to us is he calls us to give. He's to see money differently, to give our money away, not for our validation, but to give it in secret so that we receive the smile of God. Okay, the second thing that Jesus says that we ought to do in secret to receive his reward is we ought to pray. So praying is to be done in secret. Okay, verses 5 through 15. Some of these verses are going to be really familiar to many of you. He says, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive 
your trespasses. And Jesus points out to us two mistakes that people make when they go to pray. And he gives sort of a a religious example and he gives a secular example. And he says that religious people tend to seek recognition for their prayers and that secular people tend to go to repetition when it comes to their prayers. So first he talks about this person who's seeking recognition. The religious leaders, he calls them the hypocrites. And here's what he says the hypocrites would do, is they would stand on the street corners to pray. And it was supposed that they stood on the street corners to pray so that they could be seen praying in four directions at once. They wanted everyone on every street to be able to see that they were praying. And Jesus says that in so doing, they were hypocrites. And the word hypocrite was a word from the stage. It literally meant to play a part, to act. And so here's the problem when you seek recognition through prayer is that you cease to pray. Because prayer, in its essence, is to recognize that God is the one to be worshipped. It is to take your attention off of yourself and to put it on God. So as soon as you begin to think self-consciously about prayer, you have ceased to pray because you are seeking to be recognized for what you're doing instead of giving your recognition and your attention to God. So it is to pretend to pray when you seek recognition in prayer. The second problem that Jesus says we have in prayer is not recognition, but repetition. So what he literally says about the pagans of his day is that they babbled on in prayer. They thought that they would be heard for their many words. It's a subtle, self-conscious view of prayer. It's thinking that if you put together the right formula, that you will be heard because your words were eloquent or you recited some religious formula that you heard as a kid. But again, it's self-conscious because it's about you. So I repeat certain words or certain phrases or certain things that I have heard in the past And in so doing, I also cease to pray because I'm not really talking to God or believing that I can have a love relationship with him, but it just becomes a movement of my mouth where I'm going through the motions. Isn't that what we say? We're going through the motions of prayer. And if you're going through the motions, then by definition, Jesus says, you're not actually praying. And so normally we think of the Lord's Prayer We think of Jesus showing us how to pray. And it is Jesus showing us how to pray, but in the context, he's showing us how to pray in contrast to doing things that look like prayer but aren't prayer at all. And so here's what Jesus says prayer starts with. 
It starts with the knowledge that God is your father. Now that sounds normal to us, to hear that God is father. But in Jesus' day, this was anything but normal. If you go back and look through the pagan literature prior to Jesus or the Jewish literature, God would never be called father. His name was holy. His name was set apart. He was in a category by himself. He was omniscient. He was all-powerful. He was big. He was huge. He was awesome. But he wasn't your dad. And Jesus repeatedly calls him dad, our father. He says, no, prayer isn't about recognition and it's not about repetition. It's about reality. It's about having a real relationship with God as father. And so here's the way that prayer starts. Prayer starts unselfconsciously. Prayer, in its very essence, is self-forgetful first. The primary thing that we see and that we seek in prayer is God himself. So the basic conviction of prayer is that God is really there. He's real. And he's not just real, but you can know him. You can talk to him. But he's not merely our father. He's our father in heaven. And Jesus says, hallowed be his name, which means his name is holy. His name is in a category by himself. So it's not that we deny that by saying that he's our father. It's that we add father to the reality and the mental picture that God is also king. So think about this beautiful reality. The king of the universe, if you are a Christian, is your father. So here's what prayer is. It's worship. It's coming and it's bowing down before this king. And it's saying, I believe that you love me and I believe that you're powerful. And so the mistake that many of us make in prayer, that all of us have made in prayer at some point, is that we start with our needs. We come to God and we give him a laundry list of what we need. Now, it's not wrong. God actually invites us to come tell him about our needs. In this passage, we're talking about normal everyday needs, like give us this day our daily bread. We're talking about spiritual needs. Forgive us our sins. We have deep cavernous spiritual needs. We have daily needs. And it's not that it's wrong to come to God with those. It's this, that if we come to God with those first, we're not really praying. Because in order to pray, you have to worship, to come before God and to see that he is glorious, that he is in a category by himself, so that you actually believe when you start to ask for what you need, that God can supply all of your needs. And only if he's your all-powerful father can he provide everything that you need. So here's the secret to prayer. We don't come to give prayer to God in order that he will bless us. We come to receive God through prayer. 
we are always the beneficiaries in prayer. We never give prayer. We receive what God has to offer through prayer. Now think about the tension that's present in this text. It's a tension between seeing God as holy and seeing God as Father. It's a tension between worship and expressing our needs. And you know that you're praying when you feel that tension because the tension is an extension of God's very character. Think how you would feel if your dad was the king. Just imagine this. Your dad's a king. He's sitting up on the throne. And you have run away from home and you've ruined your life and you come back home. And, and so you have these deep needs. And at the same time, you believe, that's my dad. But you also believe, that's the king. And I've broken his law. I've broken his rules. And, and he has every right to kill me. And think how it would feel to walk down that, that aisle. And imagine a long, long aisle. And he's sitting on a throne. What it would feel like to walk down that aisle. You would feel so much tension in your soul. And that's the way that prayer feels. And, and Jesus says the good news of prayer is that God is the God who will step down off of his throne and walk toward you. He loves needy people. He loves people who come to him with the empty hands of faith. He doesn't want your religious garbage. It's nothing to him. He knows you inside and out. And he wants you to learn to pray, not as a religious exercise, but as a son or daughter talks to their loving father. The biggest lie about God is that he doesn't love you. He loves you. And so he invites you to stop pretending and to start praying. And the reward that you will get in prayer, do you know what it is? This is going to be really profound. It's prayer. The reward of praying, when you really pray, is to pray. To talk to God. To have a real relationship with Him. To know Him. It's to stop pretending and to be known and loved, which is what your heart longs for more than anything else. So Jesus invites us to give without hypocrisy. He invites us to pray without hypocrisy. And finally, maybe the most mysterious one of all of them for us, he invites us to fast without hypocrisy. Okay, verses 16 and 17. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, so fasting... Most of us know it involves giving up food. And so 
the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were masters of fasting. And in another place, Jesus mentions that the Pharisees would fast sometimes twice a week, go two whole days each week without eating. And what would happen is you would see them on the, on the street and you would know that they were fasting because they would just be hanging their heads and kind of silently weeping to themselves. And you'd, you'd walk up to them and be like, man, you look hungry. You're like, oh, it's nothing. I'm just fasting again. Just going without food because of my deep love and devotion to God. And you'd be like, wow, what sacrifices you're making. How amazing. What spiritual devotion. I mean, some of you, if you hear that somebody's fasting, like that's a top shelf Christian. <laughs> Holy cow. Fasting. You know, you're eating a meal with somebody and they, you know, I'm fasting. Oh, wow. It's amazing. And, and people tend when they do things like fast to, to look gloomy. They want other people to recognize them. In fact, when I was in college, I knew a guy one time who fasted for 40 days and 40 nights straight. Do you know how I know that? Because he told everybody. <laughs> I'm on day 31. Why did he tell everybody? Because he wanted everybody to know. And I remember him telling one person when he was on day 40 that he was fasting, and they quoted this verse to him. Well, I hope you're happy with yourself because you just received your reward, bro. God doesn't care. Right? Like 40 days. Wow. What devotion. What Jesus is pointing to here is that some of us seek praise through our achievements. And some of us seek pity for our pain and self-sacrifice. But the problem with both ends of the spectrum is that they are both self-focused and they both only get the reward of human praise. Jesus says, don't treat fasting that way. So if the purpose of fasting is not to get human praise, it's not to be a top-shelf Christian, then what is the purpose of fasting? Did you know that the purpose of fasting is to express our lovesickness to God. It's to tell Jesus how much we miss him. Listen to what Jesus says about fasting in Mark chapter 2, verses 19 through 20. He says, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and then they will fast. Do you know what we're called in the Bible? We're called the bride of Christ. So when Jesus left, left earth and went back to heaven, our husband left. And we feel, as Christians, his absence. We wish that Jesus was here. And the promise of the Bible is that Jesus is coming back. But here's the reality for a Christian right now, is that your husband isn't here. The person who you love the most is in a very real sense absent. Now this is a mystery because you're like, wait, I thought 
God was omnipresent. I thought Jesus was here. I thought we say that. Yes, we do say that, but we also believe that there's a very real sense in which he's not here. The way that the Apostle Paul shares this sort of tension with us is he says, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Even your best experience of Jesus is like a Zoom call compared to the face-to-face meeting. We can all understand that. To be face-to-face is reality. And we've never experienced that face-to-face reality with Jesus. And what happens when you're in love and you're away from the person that you love? Maybe some of you experienced this. You get lovesick. And what happens when you're lovesick? You stop eating. And do you know what happens when you stop eating when you're lovesick? You don't want anyone to know except the person you love. You're trying to hide that reality from your friends and from your family and from those who who are closest to you because you're not lovesick for them. You're not eating is not about them. It's not to get their praise. It's not so that they look at you and say, wow, you're so in love. That's so amazing. Love sickness is a symptom of the reality of being in love. And not eating is one expression of that love relationship. And when you fast, what you're saying to God is, I miss you. And I don't need anybody else to know that I miss you because I have this intimate relationship with you. And so I'm not going to look gloomy. I'm not going to tell anybody else. What am I going to do? The text says I'm going to anoint my head with oil. I'm going to wash my face. I'm not going to look gloomy. I don't want any attention for this. But I'm going to spend the time that I would have been eating talking to the person that I love, talking to God, enjoying relationship with him. And so what God is really inviting you into in all of these different practices is a real relationship with him. He wants you to trade in your religion for reality. The call is simple, but so profound. It's to stop pretending. To stop looking for human applause. It's to give that up and to instead begin to pursue God's applause. And here's the difference between human applause and God's applause. Human applause is always based on merit. You've got to keep working harder, keep doing more. And God's applause is based on grace. Which means he gives his applause to you, not because the spiritual disciplines like giving and praying and fasting earn you that applause. You could never deserve it. But because the spiritual disciplines are an expression that you believe that his applause is the only thing that can satisfy your heart and that it is undeserved, that you could never earn it. 
Will you come back? Guys, this is something that is not a one-time thing for us as Christians, where we just say, okay, I got rid of my religion, now I'm just in relationship with Jesus. But we come back over and over and over again. We bow before him. And so would you, with me, in the silence of your own heart, just come back, come back. Tell God with me that you've been faking it, the ways that you've been pretending to be in relationship with him. And it hasn't been true. Let me give you just... 30 seconds just to, to deal with God here and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. Father God, it is miserable to, to fake it. And it's so easy for us to trade in real relationship with you and, and love sickness and conversation with you and the joy of doing what you've called us to do and to start pretending again to start trying to earn human approval, whether through praise or pity. And we just want to come back to you, God, to know you. When, when we see in your word that we can have reality in relationship with you, we want that. And um, we can see that the only way to, to get that reality is just to admit that uh, we've been faking it, that we've easily start pretending. Would you accept us back, not because we're great or we've earned it, but because of what Jesus has done for us? And pray it all in his name. Amen.